0: Welcome to Raining from Rushmore. I'm your host, Austin Mills, and today we have something mighty special for you listeners. Instead of discussing the story of a single person, we will be embarking on a wild caboose chase to understand the grand and completely unnecessary Cold War with a few of its major events that changed history forever. Our story today comes from Book 3, Tablet 1 of American History. August 18, 1960, in the dark ambience of the war room at the Raven Rock Mountain Complex, President Dwight D. Eisenhower and his merry men argue vehemently concerning the imminent threat rising from the south. Where once flamenco dancers abounded and richly suited men were happily unfaithful to their wives, a communist-infested Cuba now presided. Nightclubs, palm trees, and cigars were all replaced with nuclear missiles aimed, locked, and loaded for the United States. But, worst of all, atop the highest building in Havana, approximately four stories, was a massive sign depicting a hunchback cowboy with the caption, There ain't enough room in this town for the both of us. It could be seen from all of the Floridian coast. Mutually assured destruction appeared inevitable. Fidel Castro, the ruler of Cuba, was once a loyal patron to rich capitalism. Yet he had fallen in love with the Russian ruler Nikita Khrushchev, who had swayed him to his communist ways. Only a few months earlier, they had become pen pals through the International Pen Friends Association. A romance developed very quickly between the two, seeing both had a fierce love of sharing. Though little did Fidel know, having never received a selfie, that Nikita was not a woman. Many of our older listeners may remember that Fidel Castro and Dwight Eisenhower were once the best of friends. After serving in Vietnam together, they were truly inseparable. It was then on a warm night in 1954 at the Copacabana, the hottest spot north of Havana, local legends Bruce Sussman and Jack Feldman sang a hauntingly beautiful duet to the adoring crowd. An ecstasy-filled Eisenhower listened intently to the music, drying his eyes on the female workers. Across the table sat Fidel. They talked of the good old days like a couple of boys with nothing to lose. But as we know from the outsiders, nothing gold can stay. And soon the finest woman Eisenhower had ever seen sauntered in. For the sake of our listeners' hormones, we will not describe her here. It suffices to say, she slowly made her way to Fidel, bent down, and gave him a long passionate kiss. Overcome by emotion, Eisenhower reached into his pocket, pulled out $50 and screamed, me next, and threw his money at her. That is my wife, Fidel screamed as he slammed his hands on the table. Eisenhower, on his second drink of sangria and very drunk, asked if he was willing to share. And then the punches flew, and chairs were smashed in two. There was blood and a single gunshot, but just who shot who at the Copa, <coughs> Copa Cabana? The world may never know. American-Cuban relations only deteriorated further when John F. Kennedy was sworn into office as the new president of the United States. Fidel, in warm accord, sent him a religious candle. Kennedy, being pious to the gods of Mount Rushmore, realized he must return the candle or the perilous wrath of the gods would surely be incurred. He knew what he had to do, but this was a job for the gods. He rushed to the Redenbacher phone in the Orville office, picked it up, and asked for Alexander Graham Bell, the messenger of the gods. (laughs) Kennedy asked him to report to the White House immediately to pick up a candle and deliver it to Fidel Castro. Bell was most willing to aid. The trouble was, phones back in those days were nothing more than tin cans on grapevines. Needless to say, the reception was shoddy at best. Due to this, Bell mistakenly heard through the grapevine to punch Fidel in the handle. Bell shrugged at the instructions and took it as gospel. He scuttered over to D.C., picked up the candle-filled parcel, and headed to Havana. When Bell arrived, Fidel Castro welcomed him with a telephone-shaped piñata filled with delicious rice and beans, or as they call it in Cuba, arroz and frigilis. The unhungry Grand Bell refused the honor and asked the mariachi band to stop playing. He then presented the parcel to Mr. Castro, saying, On behalf of the United States. Fidel quickly opened the package to find his own gift. His excitement-filled face sank and warped into disenchantment. Tears welled in his eyes. He looked up to see a large Alexander Graham fist flying into his face. Fidel collapsed onto the floor with constellations in his eyes and a stream of blood flowing from his left nostril. Bell bent down and yelled in his thick Scottish accent, Just you eat for the invasion of the pigs, nincompoop. Them soldiers gonna waltz right up to your shores and send you crying like babies. Without another word, he disappeared. Back up on Mount Rushmore, Bell hooped and hollered in exhilaration. Nine times out of eleven, he was forgotten in the warring escapades, yet he had just shown his quality. He rushed into the commons and began telling his tale. Listening with intrigue was Nancy Drew, goddess of American intel. Bell related every single detail of his political bombshell— including his letting the cat out of the beans relating the upcoming Bay of Pigs invasion. Drew's jaw hit the floor. She grabbed Bell by his jockstraps, lifted him up off the ground, and shouting in his face spat, Do you realize what you've done? Drew, along with Kennedy and his merry cabinet, had been planning this secret invasion of Cuba for months now, using the utmost secrecy. How in Jackson did you know about this? I I, I listened th- th- through the phones. Drew slapped him across the room into a pillar and stomped off in fury. Later that evening, Drew met with the American leaders, discussing what had unfolded. They all began to cry, knowing they would all be nuked in a matter of days, if not hours, even minutes, seconds. Drew gave them all warm bottles of milk to calm them down and declared she had a solution. She had contacted a fellow god who had never failed before. He was capable of escaping any situation. Just then, the door flung open and in walked a shadowy figure. His figure was old, his hair was a seemingly artificial blonde, and he wore a sheen crimson red tie. The man slammed his hands onto the table and looked at them all in disgust. A shivering Kennedy inquired who he was. Ignoring the question, the man began, "'All right, this is a disaster. We've got our hands tied on a pickle, and it's too big to get out of the jar, okay?' Those sad losers down there are about to blow you dummies into next week. The way I see it, there's only one solution. Because I know Fidel, don't get me wrong, great guy, but he's a moron. I've seen this a thousand times. We'll all be dead within a week unless we build a wall around the Florida border. And who's gonna pay for it? Cuba. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. The entire room erupted into laughter. After minutes of hysterics, Kennedy finally gathered his composure and once again asked who this court gesture was. The man shrugged his shoulders and said, I'm Donald Trump, God of walls. Who else do you think I am, a real estate agent? Kennedy lost it and howled till the Trump sounded on home. Kennedy then fell back into his seat, gasping for breath, at which point, re-realizing that they were all about to be nuked out of modern history, got up and started walking out of the room. With the snap of his finger, his secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, hustled over. Get Marilyn Monroe on the phone, ASAP, White House, 30 minutes. The lavender scented bubble bath was not enough to eradicate the rage from Trump's heart. He had been ridiculed and cast aside by a bunch of mortals. Though his gold tower radiated in the evening sunlight atop Mount Rushmore, his soul was a black hole. Finally, Trump jumped from his tub. Towed off and ran to visit his favorite dynamic duo, Steve Jobs and Johnny Appleseed, the gods of apples and growth, were enjoying a laxadaisical afternoon with a little sand badminton, when with the sound of a Trump, <laughs> Trump barged in. Never one to beat around the bush, he immediately asked them if they were aware of any big technological advances happening within the Soviet Union. Jobs would have asked why, but last time he questioned one of Trump's requests, he was pegged as a quote-unquote fake god, and all the other gods made fun of him for months. So, consequently, he had learned his lesson. Regardless, Appleseed opened up first and said, Rumor has it, the Soviets have just opened a huge nuclear power plant. It's said to be very profitable. Without a word, Trump sprinted out of the room. He had heard enough. Within the hour, Trump was in the office of Nikita Khrushchev, signing the contract that would forever change his stars. Trump was to receive ownership of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and 50% of the profits. In return, he would build the Berlin Wall. That would show those blasted American buffoons who they were dealing with. On August 13, 1961, construction began and soon Berlin was full of A-plus wall front property. The years passed, the wall continued to stand, and Trump became a thousandaire and then a millionaire and then back to a thousandaire after defaulting on a small loan of a million dollars. It didn't take long, however, for word to spread that Trump had made some under-the-table deals with the Russians. George Washington, King of the Gods, was enraged upon hearing this. He immediately descended down to Ajo, Arizona, the eternal prison of the old Brits from the War of Independence. There, he temporarily emancipated George III from his eternal dungeon and instructed him to destroy Chernobyl, while making the entire affair appear to be caused by the Soviets. He further warned that if George did not follow his directions with perfect precision, they would throw all of the Brits' tea down to Mexico. With too much to lose, George delivered perfectly. And on April 26th, 1986, during a late night test when the safety systems were turned off, George dumped some bangers and mash into the reactor, creating a series of catastrophic explosions. In a matter of hours, the site was history. Oddly enough, Trump was not around to hear about the cataclysm, for he was on a five-year sabbatical in Las Vegas. When he finally returned to his tower in 1987, he found a note on his bed detailing how the Soviets, under the new leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev, destroyed Chernobyl, thus ending their partnership. Trump, doing his best to hold back the tears, tried to call Kanye West for some emotional relief, but to his unquenchable dismay, Kanye was off somewhere making America great again. Trump had no idea how to handle the situation and finally succumbed to asking someone for help. In the ballroom of his tower that night, Trump held a forum for the other gods and goddesses to propose possible solutions to his problem. The turnout was stupendous due to the free McDonald's and Burger King. After many ideas, Martin Luther King Jr., god of unity, arose and proposed what he had in mind. Trump heated with joy, realizing his faux pas would soon be erased. It was on June 12, 1987, King and Trump watched in blissful elation as their knight in shining armor, Ronald Reagan, pronounced his famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The crowd cheered loudly in approval when all the lights suddenly shut off. Then, a plethora of colored spotlights and strobe lights danced across the scene. King was utterly befuddled at the unprecedented turn of events. He looked over and saw a smiling Trump, who was now flanked by an also-smiling Kanye West. King was speechless, but was sure this had to be a dream. By this point, R. Kelly, god of the unnecessary, was now up on stage singing R and B jams into his beretta. Now I'm not trying to be rude, but hey pretty girl, I'm feeling you. The way you do the things you do reminds me of my Alexa's cool. That's why I'm all your grill. The crowd you was dancing and partying like animals. At which point, from downtown, Miley Cyrus, goddess of multiple personalities rode through the crowd on a massive wrecking ball and smashed the wall to smithereens. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard love. All I wanted was to break your The division was officially over. The East and West were one once again. That, ladies and gentlemen, Is the Cold War. Though it was a horrifying time of madness, it proved to the world that the human element may just be the real problem. Yet, dear listeners, if there is one lesson to be learned from today, it's that even a starving Soviet Union knows how to catfish.